Uh, marine biologist Dr Riley Elliott has been tagging and tracking great whites in the area of Tauranga Harbour and believes the harbour is where they're having their offspring. Sharks were thought to be rare in the east of the Upper North Island but may be increasing in number. Riley uses satellite tracking tags to pin the location of three great white sharks, Mananui, Daisy and Swage, as well as a research project that aims to answer some key questions. Where did the sharks come from? Why are they where they are? And how do their movements overlap with people? Also, why is Tauranga Harbour being used as a pupping ground? And what does that mean for locals and recreational users? Riley Elliott first spoke to us back at the outset of his research. He explains again why he started the project. Well, basically because sharks showed up in my backyard where I've uh, surfed and dived and, and, you know, like every other Kiwi, enjoyed uh, a Kiwi summer, you know, in, in the Coromandel. And um, it would have been 20... 2018, when a, a great white actually nibbled on a guy's surfboard right below my house in Tairua, and it kind of went under the radar. No one really heard about it. And then the following day, a, a big great white was in Bonetown Harbour. And and I was like, that's weird. You know, I've traveled the whole world researching great whites. You know, in New Zealand, it's predominantly Stewart Island, way down in the cold where no one swims, you know. Um, but to have this in, in basically the East Coast holiday hotspot of New Zealand was was kind of novel. And then, um, you know, the next summer went by and, and more great whites started popping up in Bonetown and the Tauranga Harbour. Uh, and that is when I applied for a dock permit um, because, you know, I'm one of a few people in the world who study these things. And, um, and you know, for use of better words, it became personal, you know, it was in my backyard. But I was also aware that the sharks, you know, themselves are at risk by overlapping with us. And, and, as a scientist, I look at the, the fisheries data and there's a lot of bycatch of these sharks. So, um, you know, it, it popped its head up. I applied for a permit and uh, unfortunately the bureaucracy of DOC is, is quite a slow one. Um, you know, if anything, they just need some more support, I feel, more staffing, but doesn't everyone these days. And uh, and unfortunately, I hadn't got the permit yet and the following summer a girl got killed by a, a great white and I had to do the autopsy on her to determine the size and the species. And it was a 2.8 meter long great white shark. And then a few months later, two great whites got killed and washed up on the beach. And it just basically started brewing into, you know, a potential jaws scenario for people, but also for the sharks, you know, they were being killed too with overlap. So luckily uh, a permit was issued two years after applying for it by doc and um, flash forward to the summer we've just had. And I was able to go out there and, and start the project um so yeah quite a whirlwind of kind of three summers of great whites in a spot they've historically been absent goodness me so what were the key questions that you were seeking to answer with that dock permit um it's good you don't have to be a shark scientist to come up with these it's what you would want to know if you're holidaying in that area with your kids you know it's like are there great whites here and 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 how many of them are there and and why are they here and and, and and what are they doing here and how does that overlap with me? You know, basically the where, what, when, how and why kind of questions, which is, um, you know, there's no there's no real history of them being in that area. And it's not uncommon for great whites to pup in our New Zealand North Island harbours. Uh, Clinton Duffy is an amazing shark scientist at DOC and, and was an advisor of mine. Um, he studied them in the, in the West Coast uh, harbours of the Kaipara and the Manukau and it was well known, but those areas aren't exactly, you know, 
like I say, a summer holiday hotspot where a million Kiwis go and swim um, every summer. So they kind of fly under the radar as sharks generally do. So when it's something like Tauranga Harbour where, you know, to my absolute disbelief, like there's people towing their little kids on sea biscuits, you know, and ironically the the hotspot of where these sharks are being seen is in the ski lane of Matakano Island. And it's just... You couldn't, you could, you could, you literally got to be Steven Spielberg to write this kind of stuff for Jaws. But the good thing was, was that these were predominantly small sharks, uh, you know, juvenile great white sharks. And, and they eat stingrays and small fish and, you know, generally smaller than us. Um, but they do grow up. And so that to me was the clincher question is, are these sharks migrating when they become sub adults and start hunting seals? Uh, or are they residing there? And that brings with it a, a, a much greater risk to people. And um, that's kind of the place where we're at now, which is to to get more tags on these sharks to figure out what they're doing and uh, really better understand their habitat use and behavior. So how have you gone about it? Well, I, luckily I had kind of training wheels for this uh, through my PhD, um, which was on blue sharks. You know, training wheels in the sense that that's a much smaller shark and it's not nowhere near as scary. Um, but more importantly, on the way I approach the science, because look, New Zealand is a tiny country and marine science in this country is generally funded through the fishing, fishing industry or, or for the fishing industry. It's basically to catch more or at least understand the impact of their catch. Um and so there's very little money for megafauna uh, and especially sharks because there's, there's, there's like whales, you have ecotourism around them. You know, sharks, we are kind of a bit behind the eight ball there. So for my PhD, I learned that if I could share the shark story with the public, the public might be interested in engaging with it. And um, it's a recipe that I learned, you know, with the blue sharks and we're trying to stop shark finning. And it was it was very effective, you know. The, the public funded satellite tags, which helped us track the animals. And the return on investment was me putting that online so people could see where these sharks went. And it was hugely engaging. So I applied that to the Great White Project. And um, geez, people people are much more attracted to a Great White than a, than a blue shark. And so I was overwhelmed with people wanting to sponsor tags. And in fact, when I went for my permit for DOC, you had to put down a number, you know, on a piece of paper to say how many animals you wanted to tag. And it's quite a hypothetical question at that point because of the expense involved with it. So I just tentatively put down 20. And within a week, you know, when I advertised this project, um, you know, the intrigue and the eagerness of the public had funded those, those, those 20 tags in that, in that week. And I've got like a wait list of people wanting to be involved. But then comes the harder part, which is, you got to find 20 great white sharks and um, more importantly, you've got to lure them up to the side of the boat and tag them. And they're, and they're very cautious and very shy, um, you know, against what we perceive them to be, which is the, you know, the jaws monster. Um, they'll actively avoid you. So it is, it is quite hard, but this summer we were able to tag four great white sharks. Uh, they were streaming on the great white uh, app, which is in the Apple store and the Google play store. And um, it, it created huge, you know, media presence, which I'm really proud of in a short period of time, but also really proud of Kiwis because I didn't get one bad email, one bad comment, one fear-mongering person. It was always like, wow, look at that. Or like, that's incredible. I didn't know they did that. Or like, 
the most infamous one was Daisy, who just like, I think the name did it all, um, became, you know, a huge public icon and people embraced understanding where she was and she didn't really do herself favors either. The very first day we launched the app <clears throat> was school holidays uh, for summer and she was right between the flags at North End of Waihi Beach. But people didn't panic because the information that was disseminated through this app and through their captions and the storytelling and the amazing people like yourself and the New Zealand media sharing this information was that these are juvenile great white sharks that eat fish and stingrays and they're overlapping with us, but they're not trying to eat us. And, and proof is in the pudding through summer, you know? Um, yes, they make mistakes. Yes. There was a fatality in one year, but what was great about this project as well is it really enabled the statistical comparison of, of what was a great massive tragedy over summer, which was our highest drowning rate ever, I think. And it was over a hundred people, I believe, or something. And, and yet we're overlapping with these great white sharks that weren't interacting with us at all, really. So, I mean, it's been a really powerful project, um, one that was catalyzed very quickly. And this is not easy. I mean, there's $200,000 worth of satellite tags and time and the boat, the petrol, the accommodation, the, the burly, the, 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 just the logistical pressure, let alone, um, you know, the time to go sit out there and try and find these sharks. But, um, you know, I've had a break over winter and I'll be back out there in summer again. So let's look at what this is perhaps teaching you and some of the hypothesising. Why, why do you think this prevalence of sharks in the east of the Upper North Island is increasing? Is it related at all to ocean temperature, migration patterns? What, what are some of the hypotheses? Yeah, great question. And look, it's the ocean, it's fluid. And what that means is it's generally a multitude of variables coming together. So if we break it down, um, firstly, conservation. Look, the Great White's been protected for almost 20 years, I believe. And, um, you know, the goal of that is to increase its population. Um, so we should expect that the Great White numbers do increase, although it's a really hard thing to measure, but um, that would just be logical. And with any increase in a population, you then get a you know expansion of habitat use because they can't all live in one house. They have to you know occupy other niches. Um, with that comes you know the protection of their food, which is you know fish life in general. If a if a if a harbor like Tauranga Harbor turns around and and all of a sudden is much more fishy, which it does sound like it has got a lot healthier and there's plentiful supplies of prey in there. But also, you know, the adults' food, being seals, have been protected, you know, for even longer. So, you know, you've got those factors that should be stimulating population growth, but they are offset by bycatch and fisheries, which is which is prevalent and huge, to be honest. Um, then you've got, you know, the ocean variables, the the, the infamous warmer water, and it it's 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 really had this unfortunate alignment with sharks in the sense of people think warmer water means more sharks, and it just simply isn't the case. It, the reality is, is warm water means more people go in the ocean because we want to cool off. And it, you're therefore statistically sampling more. You know, there's more eyes on the water, more boats on the water, more drones, more cell phones. Therefore, there's more interactions. And that can give a false sense of increase of shark numbers. But uh, it's definitely not correlated, uh, you know, to be fact. So what you can get, though, with warming water, besides, you know, just a simple increase in people going in the ocean is a redistribution of where animals are hanging out. As an example, if you're Australian, you're not going to really enjoy living in Dunedin. 
But if all of a sudden with climate change, Dunedin becomes, you know, Sydney temperatures, then those Australians can come and move down there and be quite comfortable. Likewise with great whites, you know, juvenile great whites generally are pupped in, in warm coastal waters. East Australia is a prevalent pupping ground. Now, with warmer waters moving further south, that population, which is linked directly to our New Zealand population, you know, could be dispersing down here more and establishing more in those northeastern um, estuaries and, and, and harbours. So you've got that aspect. Um, and then you've also just got the really cool, and I call it the Godzilla theory, which is, you know, or think of it like when you chop down a tree and you see a bird nest in it and you're like, oh, damn, I feel a bit bad about that. And that bird probably came back the next spring and was like, oh, where did my tree go? And it probably finds somewhere else, but eventually that tree goes back and that bird might visit again. But, oh, cool, I can nest here again. Great white sharks live up to, you know, the oldest one is 73 years old. So you could have a mother great white who had been pupping there before people had cell phones or drones or polarized lenses or before even there was a lot of people on the water. And we may have never even registered that great whites were in those harbors, you know, and then it got messy. It was fished out. It was polluted. And the great white went somewhere else. But now she comes past, you know, 30, 40 years later, and she's like, oh, there's my tree again, so to speak. And like Godzilla, it might just be one big mum who comes and pups right underneath our holiday hotspot and, and has repeated it. Um, and so therefore, this could be all from the same, you know, mother and father. And 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 all those questions are are plausible, you know, as 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 answers to why these sharks are here. And the, the research design of satellite tagging, acoustic tagging, and DNA sampling is how we answer those questions. We can determine, um, you know, where these sharks have come from, who their mum and dads are, how they're using the area, and what does that mean for us? So you think they're pupping in Tauranga Harbour itself? Do you have evidence of that? Yes, great question. And uh, this was groundbreaking and not something I expected. You know, what I had as reports, you know, over the three summers before I was able to actually get on the water um, was that these were mainly juvenile sharks. And, and juvenile sharks, you know, uh, you know, that kind of six to eight foot long, uh, you know, a, a great white is pupped. Like a great white mother can have up to five pups and they're a meter 20 to a meter and a half long when they come out. They're mini great whites. They look exactly like a great white and they get no parental, you know, teaching or advice. Mum just pups them out and then leaves and they figure out through pure instinct what to do. Um, but we hadn't had many reports of those. It was mainly juvenile sharks and juveniles will like wander around the coastline a lot. Whereas if you see a newborn pup, they have been dropped in that area by the mum who specifically found a nursery site you know a warm shallow a good amount of prey that's small not many predators i.e other bigger sharks pretty much an, a harbor you know is what that is and um when we went down there tagging yes i saw quite a lot of juveniles and then i saw a baby great white shark and it was 1.2 meters long and i screamed like a little girl uh, because to be honest, there's probably only been about three or four of these seen alive and swimming in the world. And to see this in the harbor after just a couple of weeks of effort on the water was was quite awe-inspiring. Now, this shark, I wasn't able to tag it because it was a bit shy, um, which was disappointing. But then three weeks later, I saw another baby one. This one was 1.4 meters. And I tagged that shark and it was effectively named Swag, which was... Uh, the people named it 
Jaws backwards uh, for, for the perception change, which was quite great because you couldn't get further from Jaws than this tiny little baby great white. And what that showed us was, firstly, great whites are being pupped there, like literally dropped in that harbour because these were so newborn that there's no other way they would have got there. You know, they didn't magically fly in. So it showed that this area is a pupping ground. The next important thing to define is, is it a nursery area? And there's strict uh, um, definitions as to what has to be achieved by an animal's movement to define an area's nursery area. Um, and that is basically residency and or return migrations back to that site. And Swag did exactly that. She stayed in this harbour for a very long time um, but then she went up north after the floods. And it was really interesting as all the sharks basically got ejected from the area when the floods came. And um, they all went outside of the, all the flood water up the coast um, and into the Northland beaches, where I think there was a lot less uh, dirty water because of the way the current flow works. And um, Doubtless Bay became Swag's little home. And and what was showed us basically through this tagging data was she stayed in there for three months. And Doubtless Bay, if anyone knows it, is is very small. It's only a couple kilometers wide. And she stayed like to the point of persistence that I thought her tag must be off and someone's sitting on their boat holding it for three months or something weird's going on. But um, then she up and left, went right around the North Cape and spent the next couple of months off Port Waikato, going back and forth between there and 90 Mile Beach before her tag came off. So Long story short, what we're learning is there are distinct pupping grounds. They are then utilizing the coastline to a greater extent than we thought, which, to be honest, was great news for the people of Waihi. It showed them that these sharks weren't literally just hanging there and it wasn't the shark town. You know, it just happened to be where some of them hang out at certain times. But that these sharks were moving quite vast distances, but did have particular areas they utilized as nursery sites. And, and that to me was important for the sharks as well, because Dallas Bay, that area is a, is a very um, highly fished area with set nets, which are like gill nets, which are basically a deadly fence for anything in the ocean. And it's an effective way of fishing for trevallies and other fish, but uh, it's hundred percent deadly to sharks generally. And a Niwa uh, fishery report, you know, reflected that 53 great whites were killed in the last eight years, I believe. Um, and those are just reported ones, you know, and so generally bycatch is underreported. Um, and I also saw a lot of the public were really good at sharing information when they accidentally caught sharks through Kentucky's long lines, uh, surf casters. And um, I've started to compile, you know, not only tagging data, but citizen science data about where sharks are seen, where they're being caught. And all of this comes together for us to better answer those fundamental questions you posed earlier. Yeah, and one of them is, what does this mean for people wanting to use the harbour? Um, I mean, you listening to your joy and your understanding of the behaviour of these creatures is one thing. Um, knowing people can track them on an app is another thing. But what's the message for people wanting to use the harbour? Does it require any greater presence of mind or change of behaviour at all of the humankind? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I always kind of relate it to like a ski field. Okay. Like you can, you can do what you want out of nature. Like you can go and ride an unskied peak if you want to, or you can take your kids and you can go to a ski field that has ropes and colors and patrollers, and you can minimize your risk by uh, going under the umbrella of information that's provided to you. That's, 
how people should perceive the wild. You know, you, you, you make a choice when you go into it. And we tend to forget that with the ocean, you know, it is an extremely dangerous place just for drowning, but there are predators there. So my goal was basically never to tell people what to do. Um, but also my success in communicating information about sharks has always been because I'm quite real about it, which is, I'm not, I wasn't born a shark scientist. I was born into like surfing and diving and swimming and loving the ocean like most Kiwis are. And I was afraid of sharks. And to be honest, I still am. And you should be. You should be fearful of any predator because fear is what keeps you alive. You know, just like you should be afraid of an avalanche. But it doesn't mean you have to be malicious to that fear. Uh, you should react to it with respect and a desire to understand, um, you know, the dangers of the world. And and that, to be honest, is what I'm trying to do with the Great White Project is show people, you know, peel back the layers of the boogeyman and actually look under the bed and realize that these are cautious, calculated, um, vulnerable, juvenile great white sharks. And and they are overlapping with us. And, and the points of real danger potentially is when we overlap with their food or, you know, do that to people unintentionally, i.e. go fishing where people are sea biscuiting, for example. So that area, that harbour is highly utilised and there's been very little incidents there. Yes, there was a tragedy, but there, it was a very unique circumstance of a drowning incident kind of occurring when that happened. Overall, sharks are the most polite predator on Earth. You know, if we dressed up like zebras and ran around playing tennis in the savannas in front of lions, I think it would be a much different statistical picture. Like, no offense to lions, but you could just perceive that. Whereas sharks are very particular about what they eat, and that's because they've evolved for 400 million years to, to target specific things, and we are not it. So we can, though, overlap and make mistakes that cause them to make mistakes, and, and that is where we can avoid that, which is... Long story short, don't go fishing or burlying up where people are swimming because you're going to encourage a shark and bad visibility to come in looking for food. And a simple flash of your palm can look like a silverfish going past and it, all it takes is a bite. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the sharks generally lose in those scenarios, as we've seen overseas, where people then, you know, build animosity, start killing sharks. And to be frank, that's just a, a vicious cycle. That's I mean, not listening to you, don't go swimming when you're out in a fishing boat is one thing. If you do sight a shark while you're out swimming, does your response matter? Look, I, I'll full um, disclosure here. I had a wonderful snorkeling experience uh, at the poor nights where some little bronzies came through. The first one was the size of a you know, decent-sized puppy, and it was its movement next to me that made me realise what it was. And then Big Brother came through, and they got bigger and bigger, and then I looked down and saw Mum about two metres down, and that's when I literally ran across the top of the water to get on the boat. Is there a behaviour that makes any... And to be honest, she'd have got me if she wanted me before I took my first swim. Um, is there any behaviour that you should or shouldn't indulge in if you find yourself in the presence of one of these creatures, especially a great white, which is a step up in size although from memory perhaps less implicated in actual attacks on people than the little bronzies. Um, what, what should you do if you find yourself sharing a patch of water with one? Yeah, great question. And unfortunately, you know, I lay out what is the right thing to do, but there's also the reality kind of thing that happens, which is you running across the water, because at the end of the day, when you get surprised, that's what most things do. But, you know, 
the best thing you can do is, is set yourself with a foundation of understanding of where you are and what's in that environment. Like, understand that a bronze whaler eats snapper and kingfish. It doesn't eat anything that resembles your size. The reason why bronzies are quite dangerous is probably the wrong word, but potentially risky around humans is solely when you're spearfishing or fishing and you've got a fish on the end of a line and it wants it and you're in the way or you're trying to compete for it. That is the only time bronze whalers are implicated in dangerous attacks. Um, you know, whereas a great white is the deadliest shark on earth and that's because it's bigger, it's got bigger teeth and it hunts things that look like us when we're wearing a wetsuit. And they hit with an ambush approach and a, and a massive amount of power and 99% of great white attacks, they never eat the person. They bite, leave and realize they made a mistake. And unfortunately, though, they're so powerful and big that they're often fatal blood loss wounds. But if you see a shark, it's already figured out what you are. It's already circled you probably 20 times. And it can see way better than you are in, the, in, in whatever the visibility is. So the best thing you can do is try and like set that foundation of understanding when you go into the ocean that they are there. They are there every time you go in there and they generally want nothing to do with you. So that way, if you see one, you can be like, oh, cool. That's what that was. Now, if you turn around and one's right there, it is quite scary. But the worst thing you can do is be the, the wool to the kitten is what I say. You know, like if you swim away fast and all splashy and excited it encourages a predatory response or an intrigue. And they'll be like, oh, am I, it's not necessarily even you. It's like, am I missing out on something over there is what the sharks will do. And um, with things like bronze whalers, for example, they're a pack animal and they then, like a pack of dogs, they'll spur off each other. And all of a sudden things can catalyze into something a bit more sketchy. Whereas if you just sat there, the best tool I use for swimming with sharks is eye contact. If you can see a shark and it can see you, the game is over for a shark like, because they're, they're attuned to ambush predating. Like if a seal sees a great white, the seal will actually go up and bite the great white's tail. They'll chase around them because they're more agile than a great white. And the, and the sharks know the same thing with a kingfish, say, for a bronze whale. So if you see a shark and it sees you, your eye contact is the best deterrent you can have. So summing all this up, if you say saw a shark while you're snorkeling or something, the best thing you can do is look at it. Uh, if you want to... If you are uncomfortable and want to get out, you slowly make your way back, but you maintain eye contact with them and you try and be calm. Um, it's a lot harder when you're on a surfboard or you're just like swimming because you lose that visibility uh, ability. You, you, you know, you don't have a mask and snorkel on. And I've been in that situation, you know, surfing out on Tairua, um, other places where you see a fin and then it's gone and then you see it again. It's just like, oh, it just doesn't feel very nice. And I know that they're not going to eat me. But I also don't feel very comfortable and out of respect, given it's their backyard. You know, I'll slowly paddle in and, and leave them to it because, you know, at the end of the day, I don't live there. I'm just going to play there.